the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, The Last Starfighter versus The First Star Spider. Unseelie Tupperware covers breed human misery for dark elves to feed on. Plus, we begin the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Uncompromising Honor, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. We have an interview with Mercedes Lackey and Cody Martin this time, talking about their excellent new entry in the Serrated Edge urban fantasy series created by Mercedes Lackey. That book is called Breaking Silence, and it is the follow-up to last year's Silence, about a small town in Maine recently freed from the control of dark elves who feed on human misery. So that's coming up. Plus, da-da-da-da, we begin the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. Now here's the news. The February mass markets and new trade paperback editions of classics have flown from the breeding grounds on their first rapturous flights to booksellers everywhere. First is The Legacy of Hero, or Herot, depending on how you want to say it, by Larry Niven, Jerry Pornell, and Steve Barnes, now in trade paperback for the first time with a beautiful new cover. The 200 colonists on board the Starship Geographic have spent a century in cold sleep to arrive here, Avalon, a lush, verdant planet light years from Earth. They hope to establish a permanent colony. Avalon seems the perfect place. And so they set about planting and building, but their very presence has upset the ecology of Avalon. Soon an implacable predator stalks them, picking them off one by one. In order to defeat this alien enemy, they must reevaluate everything they think they know about Avalon and uncover the planet's dark secrets. Also out now is The Storm by David Drake in Mass Market Paperback. Guntram, the man who transformed Pal of Buin from an ignorant rube into the bulkwork of the Commonwealth, has disappeared. Pal must locate his friend and mentor, and, and then he must battle an entity which may be at the core of the splintered universe itself. And out in February at Booksellers is Earthquake Weather by Tim Powers. The magical king of the West has been killed in California, and his assassin is one of the multiple personalities in the head of Janice Cordelia Plumtree. But which one? Earthquake Weather by Tim Powers, The Storm by David Drake, and the new trade paperback edition of The Legacy of Hero by Larry Niven, Jerry Pornell, and Stephen Barnes are now available at booksellers everywhere. want to welcome Mercedes Lackey and Cody Martin back to the podcast. Uh, hey, hey, folks, how's it going? It's cold, and I hurt. It is warm here in Florida, and I hurt, too, but that's okay. Old age oh, well. is not for the weak. Well, maybe it will contribute to your ability to describe suffering, or maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's all we care about here at Bay. <laughs> no, but the uh, the sound of the photon torpedo is in was in fact my uh, my uh, eclectus parrot uh, bite b y t e. It's the boy. I have two. I have bite and nibble. Nibble is the girl. Let me let me introduce you all a bit. Um, Mercedes Lackey, Miss D. Lackey, is the New York Times bestselling author of the Bardic Voices series and the Serrated Edge series, uh, which we'll talk about soon. Uh, the Heralds of Valdemar series and, and lots, lots, many books. Um, she's the co-author of the contemporary metahero SF series, The Secret World Chronicle, um, as well, and Cody is too. Among her popular Bane titles are The Fire Rose, The Lark and the Wren, and also The Shadow of the Lion and the Burdens of the Dead, which she wrote with Eric Flynn and Dave Freer. Uh, she lives in Oklahoma, where apparently it's cold. Um, Cody Martin is a co-author with Mercedes Lackey of five books in the Metahero saga, The uh, Secret World Chronicle, uh, including Invasion, World Divided, Revolution, Collision, and Avalanche. She's also the co-author of another entry in the Serrated Edge series, Silence, which is the uh, the prequel to the book we're going to talk about today. He's an avid gamer, but spends his extra time chained to a computer writing... Originally from Scottsdale, Arizona, he currently resides in Florida, as we heard. So out now at Booksellers Everywhere is Breaking Silence, which is um, which is a sequel to Silence, which came out last uh, last year, and um, has some as the main same main character, Stacy. Um, tell us, uh, maybe just bring us up to speed on the the setting. Um, particularly this town, which is a which started out as a town that that is not one you'd ever want to move to, and Stacy had to move there. It's not unlike a town you'd find in a series of unfortunate events. This is true. I mean, I, I love the in the first book, for instance. You, you, there's no cell reception. You <laughs> you have to have a like 300 baud modem if you're gonna get on the internet. It's just like everybody's downcast and and uh, why you know it, and there's a reason for this, of course, um, and it's in Maine, right? And there's a couple of reasons. Um, it is a cell. Cell cell phone dead zone. It's a cell phone dead zone because, and so pretty much things are sort of stuck in the 1950s. And it's it's a cell phone dead zone, and nobody has been allowed to bring in fiber uh, for two reasons. One is that the family that essentially owns pretty much everything in and around the town has absolutely prevented anybody from doing that. And the other is the town is so small and so dying that nobody is willing to buck that family to try and bring anything in. So and small customer base. money main family. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like the area where I live where there are not enough people to bring in fiber. So even though there is fiber across the toll road from me, which is about a mile, I can't get it. No, there are fewer evil monsters in your area. But there are fewer yes. evil monsters in my area. The only ones that I know <laughs> of are raccoons. Uh, so you don't think that, that your lack of internet is uh, is is because of the unseelie elfin uh, presence in your area? No, it's 
because it's because of uh, Oklahoma toll road authority fuckery. Oh well, well. So um, in silence, um, Stacy, uh, what is her last name? I'm, I'm blanking. Uh, she shows up. She's having to live with her mother, um, and she has previously lived with her father in in the big city, right? Correct. New York City, to be uh, precise. So yeah. definitely a big shock coming from the Big Apple to little old silence. And her mother's a mess in silence, and she gets better. Um, you know, we find out, uh, you know, perhaps there's a reason she's a mess. Maybe just tell us a little bit. All right, so, I mean, where is Stacy at the beginning of Breaking Silence? She has discovered that she has an interesting ancestry, and um, she has certain abilities. So, yeah, at the uh, end of uh, Silence and beginning of Breaking Silence, uh, Stacy has sort of accepted uh, her place in the world. As you said, her ancestry is uh, revealed to be at least part elven, uh, somewhere in her distant, distant past, probably on her mother's side, which uh, may have contributed to her less than uh, stable mental uh, well-being. But uh, yeah, at the very beginning of Breaking Silence, we find her again, you know, kind of uh, accepting that and uh, what that entails. And for her, that means the ability to uh, wield magic. And in Silence, she's she's fought this evil family and basically defeated them. Um, But there's still some bad things going on Um, and things have gotten better. Their cell phone reception, for instance. Some spotty still coming in, but uh, yeah, without the uh, influence of the Blackthorns, the uh, town seems to be, which was, you know, their influence was artificially suppressing any sort of progress in the town in order to, well, make the inhabitants miserable. The Ancelli being uh, dark elves that actually feed off of negative emotion. Yeah, without their influence, the town actually uh, seems to be moving into the 21st century for the first time. Yeah, so that is, I mean, that's why silence was the way it was and the town was at, in in the first book. Um, is that there was there's sort of a psychic reservoir of of the vampiric misery that the the Blackthorns were were feeding off. Have I got that right? <laughs> Absolutely, and planning on increasing until uh, Misty and company came along, or uh, not Miss. Well, yeah, Misty and company, but Stacy and company. I meant. Yeah. So who are the, who's the company? Who are the friends that have, uh, have joined with her? Some of them have moved away from the first book, but we have some returning characters as well. Indeed. Uh, the, uh, ones that moved away were, uh, Riley and what was Riley's boyfriend's name? Uh, Mr. Forgettable. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> yeah. I'm blanking on the name right now. I've never been terribly good with names, but, uh, as far as her core group goes, well, first off, there is her mentor, uh, Tim, the uh, reserved owner of the uh, local bookstore where all the kids hang out and drink coffee and play D&D in lieu of having a mall to go to or uh, any other real sorts of hangouts around town. Uh, in addition to that, there are some of her uh, near-age peers, Seth, a uh, sort of uh, geekier version of uh all of us, or at least someone we've all known. Uh, there's also Wanda, who is uh, 
the resident and only goth of silence, a fact that she's very, very proud of. Someone has to keep that black flag flying. <laughs> and Wanda is um, all right. So, so Tim, uh, who is my favorite character, by the way, um, a bookseller mage, <laughs> is is uh, he's training these kids uh, f- for for supernatural missions. Why is he doing that? And what what's the what's the story of that? Who is what can we know about him, at least at the beginning? Uh, in, in my head, Tim is not necessarily training Wanda and Seth for supernatural missions. He's just training them in general. Um, he's got the feeling that Stacy is a kind of strangeness magnet, so stuff is going to come to her whether she likes it or not, now that she's now that she's a mage. And he knows that Seth and Wanda are going to be sticking to her like glue. So he's more or less training them in, in a way so that they will stay alive and possibly be helpful rather than training them specifically for anything. Absolutely. They're definitely not the sort of friends that would especially now that they've been read into the supernatural, to leave Stacy to her own fate and just say, ah, well, the weird stuff's here. Go get him, kid. Yeah, I mean, well, Wanda's getting good at, like, uh, isn't she good at Archer? Um, oh, she's good but, at anything that requires target practice. Yeah. She's got excessively so good hand-eye coordination. Yeah. And it's just is, you don't give you don't you don't start turning uh high school kids loose with uh conventional firearms. It's not a, generally a good thing. So he's he's training her in uh archery and knife throwing and axe throwing and for all I know, uh slingshot and addle <laughs> Anything that can be flung. What and Tim is um, imagine explain how maybe just get into how the magic works a little bit and and how is is it Tim is not an elf uh, half elf I don't think um, there are lots of human mages in the serrated edge and bardic voices uh, universe yeah it's shared through yeah. those universes yeah and while having you can you know do magic as just a regular person it's hard. Whereas having, say, elven blood in your family history gives you a chance to uh, sort of have an edge on being able to you know, use and uh, utilize magic. At least, at least in the beginning. Yeah. Expand this, this, this amazing setting that, that has just carried so many books. Um, and people just love this series and the idea of it, which is modern, you know, elves and modern contemporary fantasy, urban fantasies. Um, how does it work? Um, how's the magic go? How did, who... I'm kind of one of the people that started uh, contemporary urban fantasy. Uh, yeah. So I'm not going to say I, I developed it all on my own, but I, it, it sort, of, sort of sprang up around the time that I was doing it, and so I was in on the beginning of doing urban fantasy. 
I was doing urban fantasy before there was a name for it. And it's just basically that, that there is there is magic in the world, there are mythical creatures in the world, and it's just kept quiet and hidden. Out of necessity more than anything for the survival of those magic creatures and those secret worlds within. And there are, the elves had divided into two factions, um, and there are paths to their their dwelling places under hill uh which is a different it's but some of them live out in in our world uh, what are the what are the good elves or at least the the ones that are not actively trying to make us miserable <laughs> uh i took that from Saley and Saley, which is a uh, uh a celtic designation of the ones that don't want to kill us and the ones that do. Um, and the Unsaley were, oh, not just elves. They were generally creatures of dark magic, like banshees and, uh, and uh, trolls and things of that nature. Anything, any, anything that red caps. Anything that wants to kill you, kill human beings. Actually, they want to kill just about anything because that's that's kind of how they roll. Um, and it's all under the umbrella of the Fae. Yeah, and then the Saley creatures. There's all kinds of little little uh, things besides elves that are Saley. And not necessarily good guys and bad guys, but more less bad guys and more bad guys. No, I wouldn't go that far. Um, mm. Generally, the Saley either will either are either working to benefit people, which is rare, uh, mostly because people have driven them out of this this world and underhill. So there's plenty of them to harbor harbor something of a grudge, but they're not actively going to harm you. And uh, th- things that just want to be left alone. And largely driven out of the world due to the presence of cold iron, another thing that we've uh, right. lifted and adapted. Right. They don't like that. Generally, no, especially not when applied at speed. So, since we're talking about elves, um, tell, some show up <laughs> in Breaking Silence. Among them are Ian Silverthorne, Branwyn, and uh, one... One's already there, who's Morgan, right? From uh, she's Unsuli. Um, who are these people? Things. See, that's the uh, that's that's the thing. Uh, Saley and Unsaley, when it comes to elves, is more attitude than it is race. They are not two different races. They are just elves with two different attitudes. Very so much a philosophical Morgan, difference. Yeah, so Morgan basically uh, basically jumped over to the Saley side, even though she was born on the Unsaley side. The lone survivor of the Blackthorn clan who uh, threw herself upon the mercy of uh, the Saley. Yeah. What? So why do why does Ian Silverthorn show up? What's? Yeah, and Tim is not particularly happy when when he does show up. Uh, Tim is not particularly happy about elves, period. (laughs) 
Is Silverthorn is an ally of Cagman's Ian Iron Oak of of Elfheim Silverthorn is a ally of Kaon Silverhair from the Serrated Edge books that took place down in Georgia. And uh Kayvon is someone that believes in adapting it to the to human society in the fullest way possible. And they are the group that Morgan uh tossed in with and they run a uh a, a racing shop uh research motor motorsports research and uh and fabrication basically most of the cars out there on various racing circuits are not necessarily stuff from a particular brand people will commission racing shops to modify them extensively or even build them and that's basically what Caven does he he makes expensive toys for for people who are either racers or have a racing team or just want to have an expensive toy and that's how they cover where their finances come from because being elves they can basically just magic up gold anytime they want to so they're not exactly hurting for money um and when this power vacuum opened up after the blackthorns were destroyed uh the Saley elves would were not going to direct the Saley and Unsaley never directly confront each other. They did that in the bad old days, and, and it was not good for either side. So they have a kind of Cold War truce. And this is part of what Tim doesn't like about the Saley, is that they don't confront uh, bad things when they know that they're going on in the, in the human world. They just sort of ignore them as long as it doesn't impact them. And they're very slow to react as well. Yeah. And uh but when this power vacuum opened up, uh and Caven looked at the situation in the town itself in which it's still got a lot of uncanny critters running around that were left over from when the Blackthorns lived there, which are going to need dealing with. And the town itself is probably going to dry up and die because it depended on the fishing industry, which is not doing particularly well these days. Uh, he suggested to Iron Oak that he should go up there and start a whole new kind of expensive toys for for people with way too much money on their hands in the way of custom jet skis. And thus employ the otherwise swiftly losing their jobs humans of the of the local populace. So that's where that's where Ian comes in. He's got a crew of uh, people that are already familiar with working with with humans or are themselves human mages who are going to take care of some of this cleanup business 
and he's uh, moving into the power vacuum left by the Blackthorns. So it is a largely political and economic move for the Sealy. So, yeah, so there's a new factory um, that is, I mean, people might actually be able to get jobs. <laughs> and there might be some use for the old growth. People yeah. are definitely getting jobs there, but what happens when something like when a, uh, what happens in the real world as well as this world when you have somebody that moves in with a, uh, big facility is it's not just that people that live there get jobs. It's that the people that live there and the people that you imported are all spending money in the community, and that bolsters the, lo the local community because people will spring up to service getting that money. Yep. So it will revive an entire community when you put in a, an industry like this. And uh, one of the people who shows up is a new character we meet, who's David, who becomes a, a bit of a a possible interest for Stacy, right? He is a human mage, just like Tim. And they, uh, they well, anyway, it, things develop <laughs> there. Um, so uh, tell us a little bit also about the, which I think is one of the really cool parts of the book, is, is how elven steeds work um, and what they can become. Elven steeds are... Well, traditionally, if you go back to folk tales, elves were almost always uh, mounted when they when they had mounts. Were always mounted on equally magical creatures that could, uh, not unlike pukas, could could change their shape into just about anything they wanted to. And this would. What part play into the the uh, legends of the knights at crossroads who would challenge all comers to to battle just for the fun of it? That goes way back into the Arthurian uh, uh, legends and uh, the uh, the uh, Welsh legends that were that the Arthurian legends were often built on. And when you stopped having knights, the, when you stopped being able to have a knight at a crossroads who could challenge all comers for the fun of it, the elves kind of got bored and didn't know quite what to do with themselves. And the ones that ended up creating Fairgrove had this bright idea of, hey, how about if we race cars against anybody at all at, at a crossroad? Because there was a lot of that going on in the South, particularly anyway. And the Elven driven by moonshining and such. Yeah, and the Elvensteed said, "Well, we can become cars." So <laughs> they do. Now, none of these. None of these Elvensteins ever take place in honest-to-God competitive car racing because, well, it'd be kind of hard to fake the motor under the hood. <laughs> and it wouldn't be fair. Elvensteins so, don't like it when you look under the hood. And, in fact, I've got a, uh, I've got a story in uh, 
Games Creatures Play that uh, Charlene Harris edited uh, called The False Knight on the Road about exactly one of these early race, racing all-comers situations. Well, I really like that um, nowadays the modern Elven Steeds become some pretty cool SUVs. <laughs> they got to be beefy uh, uh, horses to do that, though. Oh, yeah. yeah I see. I want one of those. <laughs> it would eat you out of house and home, I promise you. You think gas for an SUV is bad. Try hay and hoats. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Yeah. Okay, so there are... All right, so we've got sort of the the setup. Uh, let's talk about a bit about the bad guys here. The Blackthorns are gone after silence, but there's they have had decades of making this place a uh a not good place, right? Um tell us a little bit about what there might be uh for instance, um there's a great scene uh, or a great uh subplot with preacher Kenny and the leprechaun, um, which is not a nice leprechaun this guy. Well, uh, basically, um, the Blackthorns imported anything they thought would contribute to general misery and not get caught. And... One of the things they imported was the the Liana she who was in the middle of the the maze that was out there, uh, and that is a she that feeds uh, on creativity. Will literally suck it suck it dry out of you, and if you're a creative person and you suddenly that you lose that, uh, very often you decide you have nothing left to live for. Uh, and that's that's kind of what uh, that's kind of what she would do. And another of the creatures was the leprechaun, who would offer people something that appeared to be beneficial and actually was anything but. And in the case of Kenny, he offers him something that he thinks is is uh, going to be beneficial to his congregation, and it certainly is not. Because there's always a price to pay for the magic. There ain't no such thing as a free lunch. Yeah. All right, and there's also, well, there's werewolves, there are trolls. Um, what What is the ecosystem of these evil things, and how? what is Stacy? Um, and and her friends have to do about it. I mean, well, um, as far as silence itself, since it's been artificially sort of kept in the past, there isn't nearly the abundance of cold iron that there would be in a modern town or city. So that automatically, plus you know the large forests surrounding it, uh, that automatically makes it very very appealing to all sorts of fey creatures who would normally you know be uh, really cast out far and wide from a metropolitan area. So that automatically attracts all sorts of creatures, good and ill. 
Um, in addition to that, you know, the Blackthorns really kind of calling in all sorts of beasties and monsters as heavies over the years. We kind of have an artificial sort of uh, amount of creatures all in one place. And they were all and being kept there. And, you know, oh, go ahead. And basically the uh, Blackthorns kept them fed and fat and happy. And now the Blackthorns aren't there, and you basically have a whole bunch of predators that have been turned loose with nothing to satisfy them. So it is it is a, a, an ecosystem with a number of invasive predators, and they're all looking to uh, looking to get a ne- their next meal. And they don't really have anywhere else to go, so they're also kind of cornered, which makes them even more dangerous. And maybe a little bit incautious. So, what is a what's a druid and what's an what's an offhawker? These things sounds terrible. Uh, both of them are extremely bad news. Uh, both, I if I recall correctly, come from uh, Germanic folklore. Yeah. And uh, the offhawker is probably the scariest one uh, because supposedly they are uh, invincible almost impossible to kill and can take many, many shapes and love to uh, attack from concealment and take their victims by surprise. In other words, Basically, the off-hawker is unkillable except in extremely specific circumstances. It's not unlike the King of the Ring rest that no man could kill. You always have to lawyer these sort of creatures. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the king of the ring race, no man could kill it, but then there was Eowyn, who was no man. And I think it was uh, Mary, who was a hobbit, who was also no man. So there you go. And, yeah, as far as the druid goes, uh, think of kind of like the same sort of thing that uh, spawned uh, myths of hags and you know, like malevolent, you know, night spirits. Kind of a magic worker in its own, uh, but twisted and definitely not of the trickster sort like we see some other creatures uh, being in this series. It is very much uh, one of the ones that would have gotten on well with the uh, Blackthorns. So what is... Um, Stacy? Um, she was very... Um out of sorts at the beginning of silence and at the end she's come into a bit of power she's she's closed this um she's she's done something that nobody thought she could do um what is her sort of character path in breaking silence how does she develop further um she's she's kind of coming into her own right oh absolutely uh in the first one she was very much a fish out of water not just in the fact that she was stolen essentially from the big city and dropped into a little nothing town where she all of her you know social skills meant virtually nothing all of her uh, cultural knowledge well it just didn't translate um but you know she was able to find herself a group of understanding you know uh, friends who really just accepted her from the uh start and uh as the story progressed and you know silence she also found a couple of different mentors, one in Dylan and one in uh, Tim. Well, in this one, she's kind of gotten really used to the idea that, hey, you know, this isn't such a bad town. 
I mean, you know, aside, aside from all the uh, evil monsters that want to kill you. But being able to, you know, perform magic kind of gave her something to hold on to. Plus, she has her support group with her friends, and now she has a real mentor in Tim, whereas uh, Dylan was sort of after his own ends in the previous book. So now she kind of has a path where she sees that, okay, I can start caring about things. I don't have to worry about people wanting to hurt me and use me or leave me or anything like that. And she's kind of growing comfortable with the idea that it's okay to care about stuff. And it it, it, it might even be okay to live in a small town somewhere. And <laughs> <laughs> Well, so long as uh, she can play D&D with her friends and do magic, it might be okay to live in a small town. Well, it's a uh, breaking style is a really cool addition to this um, this this sort of uh, tapestry that uh, that Mercedes Lackey's created here with um, with the Bedlam Spard and the the all the various serrated edge books and such. It's just a, a wonderful feel. What 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 do you guys have planned next? We have a third book in in this uh, in this trilogy, um, which we still haven't. We have a working title right now is Stone Silence. So uh, it'll involve a creature which uh, uh, is instrumental in in breaking silence. Um, And uh, other than that, anything we would say would be spoilers. So very much so. He's uh, that particular character is a very cool. Uh, we we don't want to mention him, but he is a very cool part of of Breaking Silence as well. Um, very fun to write. Cool. Um, any anything else going on with uh, with both of y'all's uh, writing? What's what's happening um, next? Well, uh, we don't know if Bane will pick it up or not, but we're working on a sequel series to uh, Secret World Chronicles. You've got a world here where, due to the stresses and strains of the Thulean War, a whole lot of kids popped powers, and so many that the old mentor and sidekick system is just not going to work. So they're trying, even though it's not a very good idea, it's the only idea they've got, and their Echo is just, has just set up a high school. Uh, you know, because stuffing a bunch of teenagers with hormones and powers all in one place is always a good idea, right? <laughs> hormones and superpowers. It's almost like it's a metaphor for life. No, it couldn't be. <laughs> Well, um, right now, out of booksellers everywhere is the is this great new edition of the Serrated Edge um, series and the sequel to Silence. It's called Breaking Silence by Mercedes Lackey and Cody Martin. Uh, Misty and Cody, thank you so much for uh, for talking about Breaking Silence with us. Oh, my pleasure, very definitely. Thank you sorry for inviting us getting, to do so. Sorry, you kept getting interrupted by my bird. here is the first entry in the complete audiobook serialization of uncompromising honor by david weber we want to thank audible for providing this great opportunity to serialize another david weber honor harrington novel and of course we want to thank david himself
Audible Studios presents Uncompromising Honor, Honor Harrington, Book 14, written by David Weber, performed by Allison Johnson. July 1922, Post-Diaspora Unicorn Belt, Manticore B, Star Empire of Manticore The shuttle drifted through starlight and emptiness, a minnow threading through a pod of dead leviathans. If there was a sadder sight in the entire universe, Captain Philip Clayton couldn't imagine what it might be. He sat in the pilot's couch, his co-pilot silent beside him, gazing out through the cockpit's armorplast at a sargasso sea of starships, and wondered yet again what he truly felt. It shouldn't be that hard to figure out, really. He'd fought hard enough to create this mass of murdered ships, after all. Yet it had been an act of murder, not war. Not really. Not when the Solarian League Navy had been so utterly outclassed. And not when it had been offered the opportunity to survive and rejected it. I never get tired of seeing it, sir, Lieutenant Calais said. Clayton looked at his co-pilot, and the tall, broad-shouldered Manticoran shrugged. It's, it's like nothing else in the galaxy, he murmured, looking back out from his own side of the cockpit. I mean, look at it. I know, Clayton said quietly. 211 warships, or what had been warships a T-month ago, floated in their lonely parking orbit, keeping Death Watch Station on Manticore B's unicorn belt. 131 super dreadnoughts, 69 scientist-class ships, and 62 of the newer, marginally more powerful Vegas lay like vanquished titans at the heart of that huddle of beaten ships. 60 of them were completely undamaged, the others ranged from near-total wrecks to ships which might actually have been repairable if there'd been any reason to repair them. They were accompanied by 29 battle cruisers, 23 light cruisers, and 28 destroyers, which actually represented a higher percentage of 11th Fleet's original roster of lighter units. Probably because there'd been no reason to waste missiles on such insignificant foes. The super dreadnoughts alone massed over 900 million tons, Compared to that, the battle cruisers and lighter units were a mere nothing, barely 32 million tons. And here they lay, abandoned, aside from caretaker crews on half a dozen of the undamaged SDs, waiting. Waiting, as it happened, for Phil Clayton, and he wondered again how he'd drawn the duty. Oh, he had the engineering background for it, but so did a lot of other officers, and he hated his new assignment. Maybe they had been enemy vessels, but they'd been ships, and he'd loved the inner magic of ships for as long as he could recall. His earliest memories were of standing with his nose pressed to the window on the south side of his parents' modest house, watching the atmospheric countergraph raiders drive across the heavens, splashed in sunlight and cloud shadow, gleaming like the tester's own promise of beauty. Pygmies compared to the doomed ships outside his shuttle at the moment, but enormous for pre-Alliance Grayson. And even more so for the imagination of a little boy who'd realized even then that ships had souls, that anything that lovely, that graceful, anything that many men had given so much of themselves to, had to be alive itself. He'd watched them summer and winter, in sunlight, in driving rain, in snow. He'd watched them at night roaring low overhead in a bellow of turbines, flanks gleaming with their own private constellations of running lights. By the time he was 10, he'd been able to identify every major class by sight. And when he'd climbed up into the attic, 
which he'd been able to do only when all of his moms assumed one of the others had him in sight. He could actually get an angle down onto Burdett Port's docks, where those massive constructs landed. Oh, the cargoes he'd summoned from dreams of other steadings. The pallets and boxes, the containerized cargo, the nets of fruit and vegetables. He'd watch stevedores unload the cavernous holds. There'd been far more muscle power and far less automation at the time, and wished he was one of them. And he'd devoured everything he could find in print and on vid about not just the atmospheric ships, but about the freighters that called on Grayson, however rarely, from far beyond his own horizons. He'd ingested anything and everything, from the ballad of the wreck of the Stedholder Fitzgerald, to the mystery of the colony ship Agnes Celeste and her vanished crew, and he'd known what he wanted. Not that there'd ever be much chance he could have it. His parents had been relatively well off, by Grayson standards, but certainly not wealthy. And like all too many Grayson families, he'd been the only boy. Besides, Grayson was the backside of nowhere. The atmospheric freighters that fascinated him so spent their time hauling purely Grayson products and produce, because there was none from anywhere else. What chance did a boy from Burdett's Steading have of ever seeing another star, smelling the air of a planet that didn't try to poison him every day of his life? That had been his father's opinion, at any rate, and all of his mother's had loyally shared it although Mom Joan had seemed just a little less convinced than the others. She always had appreciated that stubborn streak of his. He never had gotten aboard one of the Atmo freighters. For that matter, he'd never gotten aboard a space freighter. But he'd gotten into space anyway. And now, as he gazed at that endless vista of captive warships, looked at the torn and shredded armor, at the ink-black holes punched deep into core hulls, and the blown out scabs of armor where life pods had erupted into space. He remembered another ship in other battles. He remembered GMS Covington and the Battle of Yeltsin, the Battle of Blackbird. He remembered the stench of smoke and burning flesh through the ventilators, the scream of damage alarms, the incoming missiles, and the indescribable shockwave of hits lashing through her hull. He remembered a young lieutenant who'd known he was about to die defending his planet. But that lieutenant had lived instead, because a foreign-born woman, already wounded from the battle which had saved his protector's life, had flung her ship and her crew between someone else's world and those who would have killed every human being on it without her. Which was how a considerably older captain of the Grayson Space Navy, serving in the protector's own, found himself here, playing sorter of the slain to the Solarian League Navy. What's the latest from Seven, David? he asked Lieutenant Calais. They're about ready for the first tranche, Calais replied, keying up the report on his Unilink and grimaced. They're due to finish the last of the Yawada strike wreckage by Tuesday. I don't know which is worse, that or this. Clayton waved at the silently waiting starships. Believe me, sir, it's the Yawada wreckage. Calais' expression was grim. These people, he twitched his head at the same starships, got hammered because they friggin' well deserved it. We didn't go looking for them, they came looking for us. I'm sorry it got so many of them killed, but that's what happens when you attack somebody without bothering to declare war first. And at least every damned one of those ships was at battle stations, with everybody aboard in skin suits. Not so much for the Yawada strike. The lieutenant turned to stare out at the barely visible cluster of working lights that marked the enormous Unicorn 7 asteroid complex. 
The Hauptmann Cartel's Unicorn Salvage Yard and the Unicorn 7 refineries had been repurposed as one of the Manticore B reclamation centers, processing the wreckage from the orbital infrastructure, which had been torn to pieces in the Yawada strike less than 5T months ago. The reclamation crews are still finding bodies search and rescue mist, he said. Last week, one of the seven crews found their own forewoman's cousin. His nostrils flared. I'm sure we'll find a few bodies when we start scrapping these, too. But at least they won't be our damned relatives. Clayton nodded. He was grateful he'd been spared from the cleanup after the Blackbird strike. But he knew enough men, and women now, in the GSN who hadn't been. There was a curse back on Old Earth, he said. I don't know if you mantis have it, but we still have it back on Grayson. It goes, may you live in interesting times. Interesting times, is it? Calais snorted. Well, that's one way to put it, sir. More interesting for some than for others, though. Look at it this way. Clayton turned back to the flight controls. One day, we'll all be in the history books, and some idiot child, just like the idiot children you and I were once upon a time, will dream about how exciting and glorious it all must have been. Maybe they'll be luckier than we are and not find out how wrong they are. That was the first entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Uncompromising Honor by David Weber. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And the momentous kick of the constellation called Mrs. O'Leary's Cow as she scatters enlightened star oil across the universe and starts the Big Bang plus thanks and praise to Mercedes Lackey and Cody Martin, authors of Breaking Silence. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. 